Nearly 30 years ago, in the winter of 1993, the phenomenally successful American Jewish filmmaker Steven Spielberg spent months in a rented house in Krakow, Poland, working tirelessly on the film that would catapult his already stellar reputation to even greater heights. It was a film that would ultimately redefine what was possible for countless movies that came after it. The story was an emotional roller coaster, the tale of a wealthy and eccentric businessman who decides to risk everything to save those who were utterly different from him, trapped behind electrified barbed wire and threatened with complete annihilation. Filmed with beautiful cinematography and set to a soaring emotional score by the composer John Williams, it became a critical triumph, winning armloads of Oscars and celebrated by passionate audiences around the world. In 2018, it was even selected by the Library of Congress for perpetual preservation in the archives of the United States for its status as a classic marked as culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. I'm speaking, of course, of the movie Jurassic Park. You probably weren't thinking about dinosaurs just now when I told you about Steven Spielberg toiling away in his house in Poland. The truth is, Steven Spielberg himself was only thinking about dinosaurs with maybe half of his brain. He had signed on the previous year to direct Schindler's List, the movie that would redefine how Hollywood portrays the Holocaust. Schindler's List was based on a best-selling book that told the true story of Oskar Schindler, a German businessman living in Poland who protected his Jewish factory workers and their families from the Nazi genocide. As a movie, Schindler's List was an enormous undertaking. In the winter of 1993, Spielberg had moved with his wife and children to that house outside of the Polish city of Krakow, where his vast Polish and American crew had constructed a town-sized replica of an entire concentration camp and where filming had already begun, featuring a literal cast of thousands. In the concentration camp every day, if you'll forgive the expression, the shooting went on for hours. But Jurassic Park was opening that June and the dinosaurs couldn't wait. Most evenings, Spielberg dragged himself back from the blood-soaked scenes on the concentration camp set to his Polish house, where he immediately got on a series of satellite calls with his colleagues in California. He would then spend hours editing blood-soaked footage of people being disemboweled by velociraptors. Then he would go to sleep, wake up, and start shooting Jews again. I had to go home about two or three times a week and get on a very crude satellite feed to Northern California, where ILM was, to be able to approve T-Rex shots. <laughs> and it built a tremendous amount of resentment and anger that I had to do this, that I had to actually go from what you experienced to, uh, Dinosaurs chasing jeeps. <laughs> and and I, 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 all, all I could express was how angry that made me at the time. Today we'll be exploring the strangeness of Spielberg's iconic Holocaust movie, Schindler's List, and what it might actually have in common with a movie like Jurassic Park. We'll be talking about storytelling and about saving Jews, and more to the point, about what shooting Jews says about Nazis, Hollywood, and us. I'm Dara Horn, and this is Adventures with Dead Jews. 
For those of you who are under 40, it's worth taking some time to describe just what a big deal Schindler's List was when it was first released in 1993. Today, Netflix can provide you with enough Holocaust movies to fill your evenings for decades. But 30 years ago, there was still an earnest public debate about whether even making a fictional film about the Holocaust at all was somehow a desecration of the dead. The gold standard then for a Holocaust film was something more like the movie Shoah, a documentary made by the French Jewish filmmaker Claude Lanzmann in 1985. Shoah consists almost entirely of painful and provocative interviews with survivors, perpetrators, and bystanders recounting what they experienced and witnessed. It's devastating, excruciating, and doesn't contain a single second of sentimentality. It's also almost nine hours long. If that's the standard, you can see how the idea of a Holocaust movie made by Steven Spielberg, the man who gave us E.T. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, would seem almost absurd. To be fair, Schindler's List wasn't Spielberg's first film on a serious subject. He had already directed The Color Purple, about Black women in the Jim Crow South, and also Empire of the Sun, about the Japanese occupation of Shanghai. Still, the idea that Steven Spielberg, king of the summer blockbuster, was making a Holocaust movie? And not a documentary, but a movie? The kind with A-list actors? Well, people were pretty skeptical, though also morbidly curious. Maybe Spielberg did have relevant experience. After all, he'd already made a movie about Nazis, Indiana Jones. Nazis, I hate these guys. And he knew something about the ruthless and senseless murders of innocents because he had made the movie Jaws. And also, Jaws 2. So, yes, maybe expectations were low, which likely contributed to the absolute and overwhelming rapture that met the release of Schindler's List. Spielberg knew that this project was a kind of privilege, and he took it extremely seriously. The script had originally been offered to the more highbrow director, Martin Scorsese, but Scorsese felt that the story needed a Jewish director. So he traded it to Spielberg in exchange for directing the movie Cape Fear. Spielberg's first trip to Poland to scout locations was supposed to be top secret, but there was no hiding the news when he landed in Krakow in his private jet. Even the inmates in Krakow's prison crowded the prison windows just to wave to the famous director of E.T. Spielberg's budget was small by Hollywood standards, but American dollars went a long way in post-communist Poland. After fruitlessly searching for locations unspoiled by Soviet apartment blocks, Spielberg decided to build his own concentration camp in an abandoned quarry outside the city. The quarry was only accessible by a single road, so Spielberg's crew built two new highways to get there. Then they built a full-size replica of the entire labor camp, with 34 barracks, seven watchtowers, and miles upon miles of barbed wire. For accuracy, they also rebuilt the road to the camp that was paved with Jewish tombstones. 
Hundreds of Polish extras populated the camp. Snow was brought in by the truckload from a Polish ski resort. Everything was perfect. In the words of the wealthy businessman who built Jurassic Park, he spared no expense. Really spectacular, spared no expense. Absolutely spectacular design, spared no expense. Totally non-polluting, top of the line, spared no expense. The voice you're now hearing is Richard Kiley. <laughs> we spared no expense. Spared no expense. Spielberg worked hard to keep the content authentic. He co-produced the film with one of Schindler's rescued Jews and gave cameos to several others who were saved by Schindler. He also worked hard to make the film artsy. To cast Schindler, he first considered Mel Gibson. Yes, that Mel Gibson, who has had some interesting things to say about Jews. Spielberg instead decided to go with Liam Neeson, who at the time was less well-known, and likewise cast the highbrow Rafe Fiennes as Nazi henchman Amon Gert. Schindler's Jewish bookkeeper, Isaac Stern, was played by Ben Kingsley, remembered forever by movie audiences as Gandhi. The movie was filmed in black and white, with lots of close-ups of things like people's hands. And to fully shed his reputation as a children's movie maker, Spielberg also included plenty of sex. The finished film clocked in at well over three hours, which put it somewhere between Shoah and Jurassic Park. It's not enough to say that Shinwar's list was critically acclaimed, collected a boatload of Oscars, and filled theaters around the world. It's that people were convinced that Shinwar's list was more than just a movie. It was an educational experience. Or more than that, it was a spiritual experience. There was an almost holy quality to the way the public saw this Hollywood movie. It was as if it were the first ever film about the Holocaust, and as if this depiction itself were something deep and sacred. Oprah Winfrey, the talk show queen and American epitome of grace, swore that seeing Schindler's List had made her a better person. Educators across the United States developed school curricula based on the movie. Spielberg gave public speeches about fighting bigotry. And then he donated some of his fortune to create an archive of oral Holocaust testimony and to preserve digital records of Yiddish literature. The executive producer of Gremlins had transformed into a kind of Hebrew prophet. That aura of prophecy filtered down into the movie theaters. The experience of seeing Schindler's List in a theater was almost like a religious ritual. In my home state of New Jersey, Governor Christine Todd Whitman introduced a campaign of free screenings of Schindler's List for state residents in order to combat bias and intolerance. By then, of course, my parents and I had already seen it through a different public campaign. The week the movie came out, a Jewish philanthropist in New Jersey bought out entire theaters in order to issue free tickets to anyone who wanted to see it. Based on the long line of familiar faces that my family and I joined at the movie theater, it seemed like most of the people who wanted to see it were Jews. To me as a teenager, seeing all those Jewish families lining up at the multiplex felt eerily like some weird scene from the Holocaust. On the other hand, it also felt like 
crowding into a synagogue on the eve of Yom Kippur. Inside the theater when the lights went down, it also felt like Yom Kippur. Or at least more like Yom Kippur than any other movie. I had never seen a Hollywood movie that actually featured Hebrew prayers, along with references to the Talmud. It's Hebrew from the Talmud. It says whoever saves one life saves the world entire. My parents and the other baby boomer Jews in the theater were awestruck. They were also brought to tears by the movie's ending, filmed in Jerusalem, when all the actual elderly Jews that Shinwar saved show up alongside the actors who played them, lining up together to place stones on Shinwar's grave. I was only 16, but it was clear to me that this was less a movie than a communal religious moment for the grown-ups. It was less than a year since the Holocaust Museum in Washington had opened, and this felt like another solemn public moment in the national commemoration of dead Jews. It didn't only feel like Yom Kippur, but specifically like Yom Kippur's Yisker, the memorial service for the dead, the moment in the day-long fast during which the adults all silently weep for their deceased parents while most kids and teenagers walk out. As a teenager, I didn't walk out of Schindler's List, but I did find it hard to watch. Not because it was gory, but because it was long. And unlike Jurassic Park, it was also kind of boring. I remember passing the time between bloody executions by wondering whether the black and white filming was supposed to make it feel more authentic, as if people in the 1940s had lived in a black and white world. Then there was The Girl in the Red Coat, the movie's almost only use of color. A little girl who walks through the scenes during the violent liquidation of the Krakow ghetto to the tune of a Yiddish children's choir. And eventually winds up as a little corpse in a red coat. Apparently, this image came from Oscar Schindler's own memory of seeing a girl in a red coat during this mass murder. It was clearly meant to be powerful, and I could see how it would be. But as a teenager watching it, I had the sudden and awkward thought that this was some kind of reference to Little Red Riding Hood and that the Nazis were the big bad wolf. Imagining that girl with a basket of goodies almost led me to burst into giggles in the theater during this brutal emotional scene. It turned out that it wasn't so unusual for teenagers to get the giggles during this movie. Famously, an entire field trip full of high school students from a mostly Black and Latino high school in California were taken to the movie and couldn't contain their giggles. Their expulsion from the theater turned into a ridiculous national news story full of overblown accusations of anti-Semitism and racism. It only ended when Spielberg visited their high school and pointed out that kids act out in movie theaters all the time, and these students were only kids. 
Spielberg knew a lot about kids. After all, he'd been making children's movies for years. Phone home. There's a big snake in the plane, Jacques! Oh, that's just my pet snake, Reggie! I hate snakes, Jacques! I hate them! Oh, I hate being disappointed, Steve. And I hate living in this floor body. And I hate living in Neverland. And I hate, I hate, I hate Peter Pan! And children's movies, like all movies, had the ability to change people, to teach them something. I've been thinking a lot lately about this idea that watching Schindler's List can make you a better person. At the time, the movie really did feel like a kind of turning point, a compelling way of sharing the truth of Jewish history with a non-Jewish audience, a story powerful enough that it could even change the future. 30 years later, we're in a position to evaluate whether it worked. That idea that Holocaust education prevents anti-Semitism wasn't a ridiculous idea. But at this point, I think we can say that it seems to have been proven wrong. Levels of anti-Semitic hate crimes are far higher now than they were in 1993 or 1994. And shooting Jews simply for being Jews is now something that happens here in the United States. After the physical attacks on Jews in various American cities during Israel's war with Gaza in the spring of 2021, I wondered again about the power of this legendary film that somehow made Oprah a better person. I decided that I'd revisit the movie and see how it felt to watch it today. Now that I was one of the grown-ups, would I finally be moved? watched it again recently, I saw how the German figures in Schindler's List are Hollywood types, characters whose arcs Spielberg has obviously mastered. Spielberg's Schindler is basically a cowboy, a maverick who progresses from self-interested cynic to noble hero. Rafe Fiennes' Nazi henchman is like every supervillain in every Marvel movie, except much better looking. Today is history. Today will be remembered. Years from now, the young will ask with wonder about this day. Today is history and you are part of it. For six centuries, there has been a Jewish cracker. By this evening, those six centuries are a rumor. They never happened. Today is history. What surprised me, though, were the movie's Jews. It was hard to miss how often the Jews in this movie conform to anti-Semitic stereotypes. We see Jews huddling together to plan money-making schemes. Later, we see them literally swallowing diamonds. Then there's the infamous shower scene when a bunch of naked Jewish women are shoved into what seems to be a gas chamber until water flows from the shower heads onto their naked bodies, creating an unintended vibe of softcore porn. 
But what shocked me most as I watched was the realization that there are actually no Jewish characters in Schindler's List. Technically, there are dozens of Jewish characters, so many that Amazon Prime helpfully popped up a little bio of each one whenever they appeared to deliver their four lines on screen. But that's just it. Of these dozens of Jewish characters, almost nobody has more than a handful of lines. And when they do speak, what they mainly do is cringe, cry, beg for their lives, and then thank the German characters for graciously letting them live. Mostly, of course, they get shot and killed over and over again, which is certainly true to history, but after a while, they begin to feel like props. Even Isaac Stern, played by A-lister Ben Kingsley, hardly has any lines. He barely does anything in this movie except listen to Schindler bloviate. Oh, and sometimes he also types. I have to admit that it felt wrong for me to notice these things in a movie with such a holy reputation by a filmmaker so obviously talented and well-meaning. I felt like that awkward teenager in the theater stifling giggles, not because it was funny, but because it was uncomfortable. Why wasn't all this resonating with me? To help me decipher my reaction, I spoke with film and Jewish studies scholar Sarah Horowitz. I'm Sarah Horowitz. I'm a professor of comparative literature. I teach at York University in Toronto, and I do a lot of writing. A lot of my research focuses on literary and cinematic representations of the Holocaust. Horowitz didn't react to the movie the way most people did back in 1993. Since it's an area that I write about, I was really eager to see it. And I'll, I'll confess it, I'm a fan of Steven Spielberg. I love the fantasy element of his movies. And so I came in as fairly open to being impressed with it and thinking about it. And as it unrolled, I found myself becoming more and more disturbed about it. Not disturbed by the Holocaust. In other words, not disturbed by what he was showing. Not what I would call a productive disturbance, but disturbed by the way that the film unfolded, the way that it represented the Holocaust and the aura of the film. So I sat there kind of stewing and uh, I was sitting with a few friends who were also colleagues and I would say there was a mixed reaction, but none of us felt pleased with the film. We all were, were kind of troubled by it one way or another, but I think I had the most intense reaction. But looking around the theater, People were weeping, and when the film was over, it got a standing ovation. And that weeping audience, they wanted something from her. And within a day or two, I got a call from a community organization that was chartering buses to take people to see the movie. And the person said to me, could you come? We want you to come and talk to us after the film. We realize that we can't just see the movie. We need to process it and we need someone to help us process it. She wanted someone to sort of facilitate people standing up and saying, oh, I'm so moved by this film. I, I understand the Holocaust. And I realized that the way that I felt about the film, I would not be doing what they wanted. So I sort of said, as politely and neutrally as I could, I don't think I'm the right person for this. 
And she said, but why you write about the Holocaust? I've heard you lecture, you would be really wonderful. And I said, well, I have some problems with the film. I have some problems with that movie. And there was a moment of like utter silence on the phone line. And then she said in this voice that was like icy and barbed, what kind of problems could you have with the film? It wasn't my only experience like that. Neighbors, relatives, you know, people I hadn't seen in months would call me and say, oh, I want to talk to you about Schindler's List. People would react as though they had showed me a photo of their first grandchild and I had said, kind of an ugly baby, really. That audience response forced her to think much harder about the movie. A lot of the things Horowitz noticed were things I had noticed too. In focusing on Schindler, the Jews become background. There are all these extras and you see them and they sort of provide maybe the context. Oh yeah, it's the Holocaust. See those skinny Jews in a striped uniform? See those people being pushed out of their homes? But their experience is almost peripheral to the film. They also reproduce a lot of anti-Semitic tropes. They look like anti-Semitic caricatures often. You know, you have that scene in the church where the Jews go in and they machinate. They talk about how to get black market activities. They're focused on money. Uh, Well, isn't this the anti-Semitic stereotype that Jews desecrate Christian sacred spaces? This is such a classic image from the New Testament. You see it in several books of the Gospels where the Jews desecrate Jewish sacred space. The temple is desecrated by the presence of these money changers. And that image has kind of troped into or melded into the image of Jews as money lenders and the image of Jews as usurers and the image of Jews as being money hungry and money grubbers. So from the New Testament through today, we have this image of Jews and money as a desecration and an exploitation. And here the movie reproduces that. Money still money. No, it is not. That's why we're here. Trade goods, that's the only currency that'll be worth anything in the ghetto. Things have changed, my friend. What really bothered Horowitz was how the movie focuses on these extremely atypical rescued people. In one scene, Schindler pulls his bookkeeper, Isaac Stern, played by Ben Kingsley, off of a train headed for Auschwitz. And you, as a viewer, because you have a sense that Isaac Stern is a real person, you go, ah, phew, thank goodness, he saved him. And then the train goes off and everybody else on the train is being taken to Auschwitz where they're killed. And that celebration of his survivors, without the film reminding you, like, everybody else on that train is most likely not going to survive the war. That's a problem, too. So it's not just that they're extras here you really are meant to see the train roll off and forget about the people on it. The movie not only allows you, but invites you to focus so closely on those characters that the catastrophe that's happening all around them, you kind of forget. The focus on these passive rescued Jews also plays into all those creepy sexual scenes. I saw the film as a very gendered movie. And women played really secondary roles. They were sexual objects. The film is set up as an arena for these two men to have a contest. I really saw the film as a contest of manhood. Who's the real man? Is Schindler the real man or is Goethe the real man? No, the Jews are not men because European stereotypes of the Jew that are longstanding depict 
the Jewish male as effeminate. The Jewish people as a people have all the attributes of the female in this film. They are powerless. They are dependent. They're fearful. And they have no agency. In other words, some hero has to save them. This also bothered Omer Bartov, a Holocaust historian who's written about Jews in cinema. My name is Omer Bartov. I'm a professor of history at Brown University. And I guess I'm here because I wrote an essay on Schindler's List. I also wrote a book on cinema called The Jew in Cinema. The numerous problems with the film, I, I said that the first one, of course, is that it presents a false image of the Holocaust. So you come out of the film and you, you have a certain idea, that is that a lot of Jews were saved. The fact of the matter is that this is highly exceptional. Most people, when they worked, uh, say, for German industrialists, uh, ended up in the gas chamber. You come out of the film feeling somewhat elevated, elated, and you're supposed to come out of anything about the Holocaust feeling the, the horrors that humanity is capable of. The film uses techniques that Spielberg is very good at, this kind of hyper-realism. And this hyper-realism gives you a sense that you are seeing things as they really happened. And that associates the film, that film about the Holocaust, with these kind of action movies that are really entertainment. The people watch killings as entertainment, right? And they know that it's fiction. It moves it into a kind of entertainment through violence. If you think about what are the poles in the movie, you have a perpetrator and you have a savior. And they are the heroes, the hero and the anti-hero. And in between are the Jews. And the Jews are these puny little people who are saved or killed by these two larger-than-life figures. Uh, and in between, they are helping these sort of insects that are crawling on the ground. Bartov was also bothered by the ending. Probably the worst thing in the film is the ending. The, the ending is absolutely terrible. It tries to not just have the happy ending, which is the happy ending that Schindler saved, I think, about 1,200 Jews. And that's an extraordinary thing. And, and we should feel that even in the greatest of horrors, there are moments of goodness. But that kind of sappy, horrible ending at the end makes it into the worst kind of a Hollywood. He's talking about the moment when Schindler breaks down and cries. And also that moment that the real rescued Jews appear in Jerusalem. To do this scene at the end, this sort of Zionist ending to the Holocaust is, again, hijacking the narrative into something that it doesn't belong. That was, of course, a, a false representation, both of the Holocaust and of the creation of the state of Israel. Bartov's point isn't just about politics. It's about moral education, about the premise that atrocity is somehow dignifying. If uh, you want to make a film about the good sides of humanity, the Holocaust is not a good place to start. There is this notion that if we teach the Holocaust, and in many places, you know, it's, it's mandatory to teach the Holocaust, if we teach in humanity, we somehow will create more decent human beings. And I've never understood that logic. Why do you think that if you teach in humanity, you will somehow make people more tolerant, nicer to each other? There's no logic to that whatsoever. Just to teach in humanity and think that people will come out and, and now they'll be good, it makes no sense. The simplest explanation for this is that Schindler's List is what critics now call a white savior narrative. 
you know, when minority people are being exploited and then a white person shows up and saves the day. This is especially disturbing given how atypical stories of Holocaust rescue actually were. As the rival filmmaker Stanley Kubrick bitterly put it, the Holocaust is about 6 million people who get killed. Schindler's List is about 600 who don't. Focusing on a story of a Christian rescuer allowed Spielberg to make a movie with a narrative arc that had a happy ending. There weren't many happy endings in the Holocaust, but Spielberg knew that nobody wants to watch Jaws win. I give him a lot of credit for this because he was right. Almost nobody watched all nine hours of Shoah. Millions of people around the world watched Schindler's List all the way to its inspiring end. Look, I mean, I'll tell you what I think is good about the film. The most obvious thing is that many people have seen it. And one has to remember that some of the films that are seen as classic films or the, really the best films on the Holocaust and the one that competes with Schindler's List is the film Shoah. But how many people have seen that film? I really didn't want to dislike Schindler's List as much as I did. I'll be honest, I really like Steven Spielberg, and not just because he's a great entertainer. I think his movies have an endearing hopefulness that the world needs more of, even if I don't always share that optimism. And with this movie in particular, it was so blindingly clear that his heart was in the right place. So I spoke with the filmmaker Pierre Sauvage about what Schindler's List does right. I was born in a Christian haven in France that saved all the Jews who knocked on the people's doors. And I was I had the good fortune to be born, born and sheltered there. And I made a documentary about that area called Weapons of the Spirit. And I became fascinated with people who do such things. Sauvage recently watched Schindler's List again, and he found a lot to admire in it. I thought it's obviously a heartfelt work that clearly meant a lot to Spielberg, clearly meant a lot to viewers. I thought it was full of very telling moments that rang true to me. Certainly a Hollywood motion picture has its own requirements. And they have priority. If you can't make a film that's no good, you have to make a film that works, that works dramatically. Obviously, what the people who made Schindler's List, I mean, Spielberg and Steve Zalian, who wrote the screenplay, they clearly wanted to deal with the Holocaust, but they also wanted to have a focus on this really unusual character to weave their story around. It didn't come from a bad place. It came from Spielberg obviously wanting to use this film to make the world view this and, and address this. Sauvage knows that stories of Holocaust rescue were painfully atypical. But he thinks that that's exactly why they're worth telling. When the Holocaust Museum opened in, in 1993, which was the year Schindler's List was released, there was an event uh, about righteous Gentiles and the Holocaust under Izzy Wiesel's sponsorship. And I was there and, and they had invited many uh, righteous Gentiles to participate. And there were a lot of historians there and scholars. And in the breaks, I was noticing that all the rescuers were by themselves, sometimes talking among themselves, and the historians whose expertise or interest were supposed to be in this area were not talking to them. I think that they felt that they, there was nothing to be learned from these people. That's nonsense. 
you can learn a lot from good people. Most fundamentally, they, they challenge us. Next to Hitler, you know, we're all saints. People think that we're scared of evil. I don't think we're scared of evil. We stand out next to evil because we're not evil for the most part. But next to good people, there are further gradations that we have to explore. And I don't think we're very comfortable doing that. You know what, Elie Wiesel, but it, it is, a, I think, a fantastic line when he was asked, what did we learn from the Holocaust? And his line was that you can get away with it. In other words, rescuers are the opposite of inspiring. They reveal everything that could have been. The problem is that goodness doesn't make for good movies. What is hardest are to make movies about goodness. That is the hardest thing. And most people have failed. That is so hard because, because goodness is not dramatic. On the other hand, if there's one thing that makes for an even worse movie than goodness, it's when the bad guys win. The triumph of evil is a lot closer to the reality of the Holocaust, but nobody wants to watch that either. One of the biggest challenges in Auschwitz was to resist committing suicide. The chain-linked fence around Auschwitz was electrified. And all you had to do is touch the fence and you'd be electrocuted. And would, would people come, would come out of their barracks if they were in barracks, they would see two or three people hanging onto those fences dead. Well, you can't come out of a story like that feeling strengthened to deal with the future, to deal with your responsibilities. I don't think it's such a bad thing to feel good after any movie, as long as the nature of the feeling good is to challenge you to be better. For me, the most fundamental aspect of the righteous is that they are like a banister that you can hold on to while peering into the darkness. If you have nothing to hold on to, you're going to turn away. One of the major characteristics of all the rescuers, they were incapable of turning away. Sauvage did convince me that rescuer stories are worth telling. But after over three hours of watching Jews cringe, cower, sob, and die, I still found myself feeling deeply unnerved and probably not for the reasons Spielberg intended. It wasn't because I felt empathy for these cringing Jews. It was because I didn't know any of these cringing Jews, because no one had made them into people. This seems counterintuitive because presumably the point of telling this story was to undo the dehumanization that the Nazis inflicted on their victims. But these cringing, sobbing, dying Jews were only there for the German characters to learn something about themselves. And of course, for us in the audience to learn something about ourselves too. The purpose of dead Jews or graciously saved ones is to teach us something, to help people like Oprah become better people. I don't blame Spielberg for this because in effect, he was also enacting it himself. In making this movie and in his prophesying to people around the world about it, he was being that Jew who helps people on that journey to become their best selves. That's the so-called hero's journey that's the central story of every Hollywood blockbuster. There's an infamous screenwriter's guidebook called Save the Cat 
about shortcuts to creating characters in Hollywood movies. The book says that there's a moment in every script where the hero has to save a cat to prove to the audience that he's a good person. It's all about the hero. Nobody actually cares about the cat. And that's why I found this movie so painful to watch in 2021. When the Jewish community embraced the power of Schindler's List back in 1993, it was because we thought we were the heroes. The problem is, in that movie theater full of Jews, it turned out that we all were just the cats. Which brings us back to Jurassic Park. Recently, I rewatched Jurassic Park, a movie I'd also seen in a theater as a teenager. It was a remarkably similar story about people trapped in an entirely unnatural and immoral facility surrounded by barbed wire. They find themselves in the position of helpless animals, whimpering and cowering in fear while caught up in a terrifying struggle to survive against a senseless enemy. Some of the scenes felt almost identical to scenes in Schindler's List, like the ones with trembling children hiding from the predators and then managing split-second escapes. It even has the same ending, with weathered but happy survivors enjoying peace at last. In the end, they only survive because of a kindly gesture by a powerful predator, a Tyrannosaurus Rex who randomly and graciously helps them escape. I don't think that watching Jurassic Park made me a better person. I didn't care about the moral development of the T-Rex or ponder why the T-Rex decided not to eat those kids. Instead, I cared about the humans. And since it was a blockbuster, I always knew they'd survive. After all, as any good storyteller knows, life cannot be contained. Unlike in reality, at the movies, life always finds a way. I'm simply saying that life uh, finds a way. Adventures with Dead Jews is brought to you by Tablet Studios and Soul Shop. It's created and written by me, Dara Horn, and produced and edited by Josh Cross and Robert Scaramuccia. The managing producer is Sara Fredman-Ader, and the executive producers are Liel Leibovitz, Stephanie Butnick, Gabby Weinberg, and Dan Luxemburg. We hope you'll rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts so that more people can join us on our adventures. My new book, People Love Dead Jews, is published by W.W. Norton and is available wherever books are sold. It's also available as an audiobook from Recorded Books. I hope you'll check it out. For this episode, special thanks to Sarah Horowitz, Omer Bartov, and Pierre Sauvage. You can find information on their work in the show notes. Next week, we'll be traveling to the former Soviet Union to find out what happens when Jews in show business take a very different hero's journey. I'm Dara Horn, and I'll see you then for more Adventures with Dead Jews. <laughs> <laughs>